This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Well, last night we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, so if you would turn there, please. We're going to read just a few verses to set the stage for the message tonight. Last night we looked at the character of declaring his glory, which is the theological foundation for everything that we're going to be talking about the rest of the week. So last night's message was, was a little bit more academic, theological than maybe some of the later ones might be, but it laid a good foundation. And so there Paul talked about the fact that the gospel is the revelation of God's wisdom. And God's wisdom in the gospel transcends any human wisdom. Paul talked about that the gospel is the demonstration of his power. And God's power is greater than any other power in the world. And then finally we saw that the invitation of the gospel is the testimony of God's grace. And that God wants us to understand the excellency of the glory of Christ, which is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And then we're to be giving the invitation to lost people. So Paul sets up that concept for us uh, in the great picture of the glory of Christ. And our theme this week is declaring the glory of Christ unto all the nations. Now it's interesting here in 1 Corinthians 1.26, which is where we pick up from where we were last night. Notice what Paul says. He says, For ye see your calling, brethren. That is actually a very important phrase. Paul is saying, now, now listen, folks, in light of what I have just said, you should understand this. You should see what your calling is, that your calling to, to be testimony to the glory of Christ in the gospel transcends all the wisdom and all the power. Don't you see the glory of your calling? But you know, the reality is we don't often see that, do we? We are so guilty of seeing the glory of the world the glory of human wisdom and technology, the power of, of military might, and, and we see all the world has to offer, and we think, what does the gospel have in comparison to the world? So Paul is again arguing that, that the glory of Christ and the glory of the gospel transcends all of that. You need to see that. So he says, for ye see your calling, brethren. And then he talks about who we are. Not that how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not. Now, if you want to know what it is to be an are not, it's like a zero with a ring rubbed out. That's what an are-not is, the things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are. Why? Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So what's Paul saying? Paul is saying that the weakness is with us, not with Jesus Christ. And if we focus on ourselves, we will be intimidated, we will be discouraged. But if we focus on the glory of Christ... We will understand the glory of our calling. And we will understand that no one is to glory in his presence in themselves, but they're to glory in him. 
Now, Paul, in introducing this passage where he talks about seeing your calling and the nature of who we are and ending it with a statement, let no one glory in his presence. We're not to glory. Christ is all the glory. Is actually probably an indirect reference to something that happened in Mark chapter 9. So if you would turn with me tonight, please, to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking tonight at the clarity of declaring his glory. Because, folks, Paul is appealing to us after he's talked about this theological foundation, he is appealing for us to see something, to see the glory of Christ, to see the glory of our calling, to have clarity about who we are and who Christ is, and that we should not glory in his presence. Well, in Mark chapter 9, you have the story of what is called the transfiguration of Christ. And what is actually happening is the disciples are not glorying in Christ. They're glorying in their own wisdom, in their own power, in their own selves. And so God sets up the inner circle three to go into an exceeding high mountain with Christ so that they might clearly see the glory of Christ. And when they see clearly, as Paul spoke of in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1, when they see the glory of Christ clearly, they do not glory in themselves, but they glory in the Savior. So tonight we're going to ask God for clarity in concerning the declaring of his glory. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we thank you tonight for the privilege of looking at this text We pray, Father, as we look at the glory of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration that we would be reminded that Jesus is the wisdom and the power and the glory of God, and we're not. Lord, help us to remember our calling and to see it clearly and to boldly go with the gospel to a lost and dying world. And we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So back to Mark chapter 9, if you would, please. The Lord Jesus has been walking with the disciples in the region of Caesarea Philippi in those villages, and he has been teaching them about his deity and his demands, and he has been been telling them that that he's going to die. And as, as he tells them that he's going to die, they're arguing about who's going to be greatest in this future kingdom. They just don't get it. And in that context, Christ speaks to them, Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore, save Jesus only with themselves. 
And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. So Christ is teaching the disciples of his glory. What's interesting in chapter 9, it begins with this statement of Christ that there would be some present who would not die until they saw the kingdom of God come in power. There's actually some theological debate about what that represented, but I think it's very obvious that each of the gospel writers link that statement immediately to the transfiguration. And these men, Peter, James, and John, saw the glory of God come by the revelation of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. This mount is a very interesting mountain. The Bible doesn't identify it for us. It simply says it was an exceeding high mountain. I read one Bible commentator in the New International Dictionary of Bible Archaeology that said it was Mount Tabor. If you've been to Israel, you know that Mount Tabor sits out in the plain. It's 1,000 feet high, and it looks really impressive, but it's only 1,000 feet high, and by biblical standards, that is not an exceeding high mountain. Because a little bit to the north, there is Mount Hermon, which is 9,200 feet high, uh, nine times taller. What was interesting, at the time of Christ, there was a fortified city uh, built on the top of Mount Tabor. So I can't see Christ taking the disciples into the middle of downtown Mount Tabor and being transfigured there before them. So we know it's not Mount Tabor. It was probably in the region of Caesarea Philippi, one of the branches of the mountain that we know as Mount Hermon. So Christ there is transfigured before them and he is revealing to them his glory. Now why did he do that? Because within about one year from this time, Jesus is going to be dying on a cross. He is going to be fulfilling what he is telling them will come to pass, which is his death for their sins. And it will be easy for them when they see him hanging there as a bloody pulp to wonder if he is really God in human flesh. So Christ takes them to the glory of the mountain of Mount Hermon and he reveals his radiant glory so that in one year when they see him dying on another mountain, they'll remember who he is. And you know, sometimes folks, as we see Christ in the midst of the awfulness of a society that hates God, and we see evil triumphing and we see the things of God being ridiculed, it's easy for us to forget that he's the God of glory. So what we need to do is go back to the Bible and have clarity about his glory so that we can declare that glory even in the face of something like Calvary. So tonight we look at the clarity of declaring his glory. The first thing we see in verses 2 and 3 is the marvels of this mountaintop glory. We find, first of all, we marvel at our transfigured Lord. It says in verses 2 and 3 that after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured here is a very interesting word. It is, it is the Greek word metamorphomai, and uh, it is the word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. What is that? 
If you remember your high school science, the, the worm or the caterpillar goes into the chrysalis or the cocoon, and in that cocoon there is an unseen change, a transformation, that when that creature breaks out of that veil, that cocoon, it is a beautiful butterfly or a glorious moth. So an unseen change that by transformation reveals glory. That's the meaning of the Greek word. So Christ was transfigured before them. Mark says that his raiment was shining, which means the the blinding glare off a piece of metal like a a flashing sword. Uh, Matthew and Luke call attention to the face of Christ as being that which is radiant. So Mark talks about the radiant nature of his clothing, but we find out that the real aspect of his glory was the radiation of his being that was so dominant that his very clothing looked like the bright shining of the sun off a steel blade. Christ laid aside the cocoon of his humanity and he revealed to them that he is in fact glorious God of all the ages and when they saw that they fell before him as dead men. He was transfigured. It's interesting that the use of this word transfigured is used twice in the New Testament, and you know both of those passages probably quite well. One of them I'm sure you do, Romans 12, 2. It says, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye what? Transformed, there's the word. Don't be conformed to this world system, but like Christ, be transfigured, reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. But the greater use of that word is 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul writes, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are changed, there's the word, into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. What is Paul saying? When you and I got saved, God put some of his glory inside of us. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and he is glorious. We have the glory of God inside of us. And as we go into the word of God and we focus on Christ and his glory, that glory as in a mirror is radiated from our lives and we become more glorious as we reflect who he is. Now folks, the glory is not in us. As a matter of fact, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1? God's chosen the foolish and the base and the weak that no flesh should glory in his presence. So as we get in the word of God and we begin to reflect the glory of Christ, whose glory is it? It's his and it is not ours. So we marvel at our transfigured Lord. We marvel also at the terrified disciples. Look at verse 6 where it says, For Peter wist not what to say. Now, what that's an old English way of saying. He didn't know what to say, so he opened up his mouth and said it. And that's a bad thing to do. You know, if you don't know what to say, be quiet. But anyway, Peter said something. We'll talk about that later. For they were sore afraid. This phrase, sore afraid, is used one other time in the New Testament. It speaks of formidable fear. Or one translator said, transfixed by fear. It is used in Hebrews 12, 21, speaking of Moses at Sinai. 
Moses said at the glory of God on Sinai, Hebrews 12, 21, that so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Moses had his knees knocking. Peter and James and John fell on their face before Christ. So folks, we marvel at the terrified disciples, but the reality is in the Bible, meeting God in all of his glory will always result in us recognizing who we are and falling before him in submission. So we marvel at the transfigured Lord, but we also marvel at the terrified disciples. And then thirdly, we marvel in this passage at the transformed scene. Look at verse 7. It says, And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Now it's interesting, there are a lot of Bible commentators who lend themselves toward a more liberal position who say that this was just an ordinary cloud that appeared on the top of Mount Hermon, which, by the way, is most of the year uh, snow-packed. Uh, it's 9,200 feet, even, even in, the, in the Middle East there. One commentator said this, A strange peculiarity has been noticed about Mount Hermon in the extreme rapidity of the formation of clouds upon the summit. In a few minutes, a thick cap forms over the mountain and it quickly disappears uh, entirely. So there are those who would say, well, this was just a cloud that came over and Peter and James and John thought there was something special about it. But folks, the Bible is very clear. Matthew records in chapter 17, verse 5 in the parallel account that this was a bright cloud. And literally that word bright means a luminous cloud, a cloud that radiated the glory of God. And we have seen that cloud elsewhere in the Bible. You remember the story of the children of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt. And they were led by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. And it was a luminous cloud. It was a bright cloud. It was the Shekinah. It was the glory of God come down to man that led the children of Israel. And then, of course, you remember when they dedicated the tabernacle and the glory of God came upon the holy place. It was the glory of a cloud descending with a radiant luminous quality. The same thing happened when Solomon dedicated the temple and the glory of that cloud was so radiant and luminous that the, the priest could not stand to stay in the temple. And then in John chapter 1, John says this, And we beheld his glory. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he came down and he tabernacled among us. Folks, what is happening here is God is revealing the Shekinah glory of his Son, who is the ultimate fulfillment of the glory of God on earth. Someday that glory will return to this earth when Jesus comes back in the clouds to begin his thousand-year reign, and he will rule from Jerusalem, and he will rule on this earth for a thousand years in great glory. And then after that, of the increase of his kingdom, there shall be no end. And even the heavenly Jerusalem that we will someday dwell in will have no need of the light, for the Lamb is the light of that city. Folks, we are talking about the glory of God coming down, the Shekinah on this mountain, revealing to these poor disciples that Jesus Christ is glorious, and they're not. 
Now, up to this time, they've been thinking they're pretty glorious because they've been arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Remember, Peter, of course, was always the braggadocio one. But we find out that James and John, the sons of thunder, Boanerges, they also were very uh, desirous of having glory because they got their mother to go to Christ and ask if they could sit on the right hand and the left hand. And Christ said, no, it's not for me. It's for my father. So these disciples thought they were pretty glorious until they saw the king in his glory. And then they fell before him as dead men. Folks, we are guilty of thinking this world and our lives are pretty glorious until we really see Jesus as he is in the word of God. 2 Peter 1.18, when Peter would years later write of this experience, he talked about it being the holy mount. Because, folks, a holy mount is a high mountain where Jesus is. That's what makes it a holy mount. So we, first of all, tonight, we marvel at this mountaintop glory. Now, the second thing we want to see, and we have three movements tonight, we're going to have to go very quickly, is the encouragement, of, secondly, the ministry of the mountaintop glory, which is the encouragement of the past and the present. And we'll just spend just a few moments on this point. But in verses 4 through 7, you have the most amazing thing taking place. You have Moses and Elijah appearing with Christ as Christ is revealing all of his glory. Here comes Moses and Elijah. That in and of itself is quite an experience. I have never met Moses or Elijah. It would be, it would be a real mountaintop experience if I got to talk to those two guys, and it would be for you as well. So what is happening here? What is the ministry that's taking place as we look at that? Well, first of all, there is encouragement from the past, and that's found in verse 4. And there appeared unto them Moses, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Jesus had made the decision in eternity past that he would come in obedience to the Father and the counsel of the Trinity, as Acts chapter 2 points out in Peter's message on Pentecost, that God had predetermined that Christ would be the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Now his hour was almost come. Jesus, within one year, will die on the cross. Christ is controlling the very time of his death. He knows exactly when he will die. And the scripture points out, culminating in the Garden of Gethsemane, there was a growing tension in the humanity of Christ as he struggled in his humanity with that coming death which he fully knew about. So Jesus, in his humanity, needed encouragement. So here on this mount, amazingly, Elijah and Moses come and they talk with Jesus. He says, well, Brother Stedman, what did they talk about? Luke tells us in the parallel account. It says that they spoke with Jesus of his exodus. Now, have you ever heard the word exodus or exodus? It's translated in our King James of his decease. It literally means his departure. Because in the Old Testament, Moses led that first great exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt. They were delivered from bondage. And Jesus was going to lead a, a host of people out of bondage through his death upon the cross. So they came and spoke of his exodus. You know, it's interesting. These two men have so many similarities to the Lord Jesus. The face of Moses had a luminous quality. 
when he was there on the mountain receiving the law, the Shekinah glory of God made his face shine like Jesus' face was shining. Moses and Elijah both had, both had their most intimate experiences on top of mountains. For Moses, it was Mount Sinai. For Elijah, it was Mount Horeb and the still, small voice of God. The physical exoduses of these men were very unique. Moses died in the top of Mount Peor, and God buried him in the valley, and no man knew where his grave was. Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind. They had really radically different exodoses. And they came to Jesus, no doubt at the insistence of the Father, to encourage Jesus about his coming death because Jesus in his humanity needed encouragement, which is an amazing thing. But the second thing we find here is not only was this an encouragement of the past, but there is encouragement of the present. Because Peter, James, and John have been hearing, we read about it in Mark chapter 8, Jesus saying that he is going to die. And, and Peter is so upset about that that he takes Christ aside and says, Not so, Lord, it shall not be unto you. These disciples are totally alarmed that Jesus is talking about dying and go, going away. And so God comes to them in verse 7. Notice as as. Peter makes his statement about the other two men. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. So God spoke from heaven to encourage the disciples that all of the glory belongs to Jesus. And they understood the encouragement of the present. So let's make the application tonight. What is the meaning? We've seen the marvels of this mountaintop glory of Christ We've seen the ministry on this mountaintop of glory. Now, what is the meaning? And there are two aspects of the meaning for us today. Notice, if you would, verse 9. It tells us who the people are that should learn this lesson. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. Now, here, Pastor, is a very interesting thing that Christ did. Because he was in control of the very hour of his death, which would synchronize with the annual Passover lamb being slain, he controlled perfectly the timing of his death. He said, don't tell any man yet. And what did those that got healed and got saved do? They went and told everybody. But then he told the disciples after he was raised from the dead, now you go tell everybody and what do we do today? We don't tell anybody. It's the folly of our humanity. But here there is an emphasis. There is a lesson for those who are living right then. Don't tell anybody right now. But after I'm raised from the dead, you can tell everybody. So there's a lesson for us because we live after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So what is the lesson, the meaning? Number one, the message for us is one of perception. Just like these disciples, we so tend to have a low view of Jesus. We so tend to see Christ through the lens of our humanity and our weakness, and we compare ourselves and our Savior to the power of the world and the wisdom of the world, and we become fearful because we have a low view of Jesus. 
The great need of the hour is for us to have a high view of Jesus Christ. To go to the word of God and to see him in his glory as Paul wrote there in 2 Corinthians 3 and to see him in his glory and let that glory fill our lives so that we can radiate that glory, declaring his glory to the nations. That is our need. I told you last night that I was not raised in a Christian home. Uh, when I was 10 years old, a gentleman came by our house in July 1964, so you can figure out how old I am. But July of 1964, a man came by our house with a station wagon. Now, for the young people here, a station wagon was a precursor to a church bus, okay? That's what that was. And he was picking up kids for vacation Bible school at, at Solomon's Temple Baptist Church in Blair's Gap, Tennessee. And he invited me to Bible school. I said, what's that? He said, well, if you come, we'll have Pepsi and we'll have cookies and, and we'll have a great time. And I thought, boy, that's an easy decision. Hoe the garden for mom in the heat of Tennessee or, or go to Bible school. So I went to Bible school. And in the closing program on a Friday night, uh, they had the, the Bible school during the day, but then they had the closing program Friday night. There was a big, gray-haired, barrel-chested man named L.C. Collins that stood up. And he preached the glories of Jesus Christ. And I understood that I was a lost, hell-deserving sinner. And I didn't go forward in Bible school, but I went home that night and I knelt by my bed and I asked Christ to be my Savior and he changed me radically. He made me a new creature. Later on, L.C. Collins, who pastored a church in town, became my pastor. He baptized me. I became his Timothy. I preached his funeral when he died. But Elsie Collins had a fourth grade education. He worked all of his life for Eastman Kodak. He planted several vibrant Baptist churches in East Tennessee, pastored them, but never got a penny because he worked full time. But he was a powerful preacher of the Word of God. And I will never forget till I go home to heaven and hug his neck in glory this big, gray-haired, barrel-chested man who would preach on the glories of Christ, especially I heard him many times preach on the transfiguration, and he would weep and talk about the glories of Christ and how that should motivate our lives. And he burned it into the heart of a young man who is now somewhat gray-headed, though not in the middle. You know, folks, I'm really not bald. I just have a very wide part. The glories of Jesus Christ. It's a message of perception that we would behold his glory. The second thing, it's not only a message of perception, but it's a message of practicality. Because in verse 5, Peter opened his mouth and said what he didn't understand. He said, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he wist not what to say. Peter said, as it was the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, which the Jews celebrated in honor of their wilderness wanderings, Peter said, hey, this is a great Bible conference. Let's build three tents and, and let's just stay on the mountain and have Bible conference or missions conference. This is great. And the part of Peter saying that this is great was correct. You know, Peter said, it is good for us to be here. By the way, you know, it's good for us to be here tonight, isn't it? 
And if everybody that came on Sunday believed it was good for us to be here, you'd have the same attendance tonight you had on Sunday morning. And it is good for us to be here. So Peter got that right. But Peter misunderstood the uniqueness of Christ because he said, let's build three tabernacles, putting them on an equal footing, Moses and Elijah with Christ. F.B. Meyer said in his commentary, this was preposterous that man should be put on a level of the glory of Christ. And God the Father from heaven was so offended by Peter putting Jesus on the level with, with Moses, the great lawgiver, and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. But men, God was so offended that he spoke from heaven, this is my beloved son, hear him. And they were scared out of their wits when they saw the glory of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.29, Peter, uh, Paul says that no flesh should glory in his presence. Peter, James, and John wanted to stay on the mountain, but look at what happened. It says in verse 9, And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. What did they do? They came down from the mountain. Now, why did the Holy Spirit record that they came down from the mountain? Because if you read the rest of chapter 9, at the bottom of the mountain, there were nine other disciples who were trying to cast a demon out of a little boy, and they could not. They were powerless. And Jesus came down to the bottom of the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he instantly cast the demon out and saved the boy, and it was glorious. Now, folks, we come to Missions Conference, and why do we come? We come this week with the theme of declaring his glory. We come together to see his glory. But the purpose of our coming together to see his glory is not that we would build tabernacles here and stay here and just always come to church. The purpose is to go down from the mountain to a world full of demon-possessed lost people who need to hear of the glory of Jesus. And so as we leave tonight, as we finish, God gives us a glimpse of his glory so he can change us, so we can reflect that glory to a lost and dying world. We're to declare his glory to all the nations. So this thing called missions will not happen if we become enamored with the world and its wisdom if we become enamored with the world and its power, but it will happen if we see Jesus in all of his glory and we let him change us into that same glory by his grace, then missions will not be stopped because Christ will be glorified. Let's bow our heads together. With your head bowed and eyes closed for just a moment, I want to end with an illustration. And I would like to ask you tonight, what are you glorying in? What is the glory of your life? You know, maybe for someone it's your boat or your job or your house or your possessions. Maybe it is a physical relationship. You know, I, there are many things that we can glory in that become the priorities of our lives. 
in contradiction to the will of God? What is it that you glory in? Evil Knievel was a daredevil who did many stunts with motor vehicles. It is said that he broke virtually every bone in his body during his adult life. In his biography, Evil Knievel spoke of his philosophy of life. This is what it is. He said, Bones heal, chicks dig scars, pain is temporary, but glory is forever. End of quote. Folks, as far as I know from reading about him, today evil Knievel is burning in the flames of hell. His type of glory is not forever. But that's what he lived for. Folks, we have a glorious Savior whose glory is eternal. None of our glory is, but his is. So why don't we live for his glory? We need that glory experience on the mountain. And I pray God will give us that this week in this missions conference of beholding his glory. But then he wants us to take it down to the bottom of the mountain where needy souls are. What are you glorying in tonight? Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.